Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wasper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, according to The Guardian, a group of woodpeckers stashed about 700 pounds of nuts in a California home. Wow. (laughs) But was there a person in the home? Because that's going to make a big difference to this story. (laughs) (laughs) The story starts off with exterminator Nick Castro, and he was inspecting a home specifically for mealworms, according to the article. But that's when he discovered something nuts. Apologies. Uh-huh. Tens of thousands of acorns came cascading out from behind a bedroom wall. <laughs> he said he filled a total of eight garbage bags with 700 pounds of acorns. Wow. And they had been stashed there by acorn woodpeckers, peculiar little birds with a shock of red feathers on their head. They are known as prodigious acorn collectors, and normally they store these acorns in small holes they drill into dying tree stumps, which they protect all territorial-like. And to be fair, generations of woodpeckers, they can take up to 100 years to perforate large trees with 50,000 acorn cubby holes. And by the way, these birds do form polyamorous families with up to seven Hmm. males and four females. Very progressive. (laughs) And because the nuts kept falling into a wall cavity from the chimney, the birds couldn't access them. They just kept trickling to the bottom and the sides. And so they just kept filling the gap with more and more acorns. I mean, I guess they don't need them. Like, if you're constantly losing your stash of acorns, doesn't that mean some polyamorous woodpecker family is going to starve? Like, they keep putting all their food down this <laughs> chimney and there's no food to go get. I just, I, I don't understand. It's pretty dark. I'm sorry. Yeah, I also assumed that woodpeckers <laughs> ate worms and bugs that were in mm. there, not storing stuff for later. But that's that's on me. I'm not an animal biologist. No, you know, it's probably a combination of, but because there was never really a, a satiation. Like, like, oh, this is full. Exactly. Right, they just kept going. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be if you're a contractor going like, okay, I'm just going to yeah. remove this one piece of drywall. And an absolute avalanche of acorns <laughs> comes down at you. Well, like, what do you even think those are? I mean, you've got to run screaming from that room. Right, initially, right. That's it true. does sort of look like fossils of cockroaches just yeah. piled. I mean, there mm-hmm. are pictures. I do recommend taking a look at it. <laughs> the article makes no mention of the fact that somebody's living in the home, but the fact that an exterminator was called out, mm-hmm. man, who knows what kind of like pachinko sounds they've been living with over the years. <laughs> yeah, or like, were the walls bulging? You know, (laughs) (laughs) next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from ArsTechnica.com and it's titled Study Mexican Jumping Beans Use Random Walk Strategy to Find Shade. Oh, Oh, is that what they were looking for this whole time? Yeah. (laughs) 
So if for some reason you've never been exposed to Mexican jumping beans, they are these tiny little seed pods from a shrub native to Mexico, which actually have moth larvae living inside. They kind of look like, you know, very tiny acorns. Mm. But when they're in heat, they actually jump. And by which I mean, uh, excuse me, when they are exposed to high temperatures. Right, right. They're not not amorous jumping beans. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Although I'm sure you can find those at dispensers if you look hard enough. Sure. Yes, definitely. (laughs) Anyways, Mexican jumping beans have been a curiosity for many an inquisitive child. And yes, they really do jump thanks to the presence of tiny moth larvae inside the pods. According to a recent paper published in the journal Physical Review E by physicists at Seattle University, those jumps can help the moth larvae inside find shade to survive on hot days. And the jumping movements seem to follow a random walk strategy in order to do so. The notion of a random walk is based in part on the physics concept of Brownian motion. The concept dates back to 1827 when a scientist named Robert Brown was studying pollen particles floating in water under a microscope. He noticed a strange jittery motion and thought the pollen might perhaps be alive. But when he repeated the experiment using particles of dust he knew were not alive, he still saw the jittery motion. Brown never determined what caused the motion, but Albert Einstein did in a 1905 paper in which he sought to confirm the existence of atoms and molecules. Einstein's relevant insight was that molecules in a fluid like water would randomly move about and collide with other small particles suspended in the fluid like pollen or dust, giving rise to the jittering Brown had observed some 80 years earlier. Imagine you're walking along a straight line. Each time you take a step, you flip a coin. If it's heads, you step forwards. If it's tails, you step backwards. That means that your future final position is independent of your original starting position, hence the term random walk. The concept has since been adapted to model stock market fluctuations, population genetics, and neuron firing in the brain, along with other applications. Hmm. During World War II, Brownian random walks were used to model the distance that an escaped prisoner would travel in a given time since it can be an effective search strategy, particularly over a small, densely populated area. So that's where the Mexican jumping beans come in. Moths lay their eggs on the hanging seed pods in the spring when the shrub is flowering. When the eggs hatch, the new larvae burrow into the pods and start eating the seeds. Meanwhile, the pods ripen and fall to the ground, splitting into three smaller segments. The larvae are still inside, and they can actually survive for months in there, curling up periodically, and when their heads hit the pod walls, the beans jump, which is a very strong curl, but Mm -hmm. they got a lot of core strength in there, I guess. CrossFit. Uh, They're doing CrossFit. Yeah, they jump more when temperatures start to rise, and hot direct sunlight can kill the larvae. The prevailing hypothesis is that the beans jump in order to move to a cooler, shady spot so they can survive long enough to reach the pupal stage. Once the full-grown moth emerges from the seed pod, it generally only lives for a few days because such is the cycle of life. (laughs) Devin McKee and Pasha Tabatabai of Seattle University built a temperature-controlled flat recording platform out of electrically heated mats covered by an aluminum sheet to ensure even heat dispersal and a sheet of white paper on top of the aluminum for image contrast. They then record the jumping behavior for over an hour or so to collect positional data for each of the 37 beans used in the experiment and created a computer simulation from that data to describe the various trajectories. Almost all of the jumps by the beans took place within 10 seconds, and their trajectories were in keeping with a random walk regardless of the degree of friction between the beans and the platform's flat surface. But was this the most effective strategy for the beans to escape direct sunlight? When McKee and Tabatabai compared the random walk to a less random pattern of movement, 
They found that while the alternate pattern let a bean find shade more quickly, only a small fraction of the beans succeeded in doing so. With the random walk strategy, it took a little longer for the beans to find shade, but they were much more likely to succeed in their quest and therefore survive at all. Hmm. The authors concluded, These results suggest that diffusive motion, or random walks, in Mexican jumping beans does not optimize for finding shade quickly. They use a strategy that minimizes the chances of never finding shade when shade is sparse. And do we eat Mexican jumping beans? God, I, don't I don't think, think so. so. No. Okay. They're, they're just okay. like little kids' toys, basically. We just ship I them see. over. I'm going to say no as well. If someone served one up to me and it was wiggling on my plate, I would immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm rethinking the whole kids' toy thing now, too, knowing what I know about it. Like, yeah, here's a fun gross. little thing for you. It's dying in a prison. It can't get out of. <laughs> Wee! Yeah, like, I'm just imagining pan frying Mexican jumping <gasps> beans and it's like, ooh. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. Next link. (laughs) Next Next link. link. We will uh, stay in the world of biology, I guess. This is from New Atlas. Arthritis drug mimics young blood transfusions to reverse aging in (gasps) mice. Can I be a vampire now? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we're getting there. Researchers have recently shown that infusions of youthful blood can improve the health of the old. But this is just a drug that is as good as youthful blood infusions, right? Like well, this study, they've done both. The new study mm. is saying that we won't have to steal the blood of the young. <laughs> correct, correct, <laughs> right, right, right. I don't have to resort to vampirism. Yeah. So there's this woman. I don't know if you all know who Elizabeth Bathory was. Mm-mm. She uh, lived in the late 1500s, and she is known for killing over 300 people, maybe 650. <gasps> wow, the rare female serial killer. Nice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she would allegedly bathe in their blood to stay youthful. <laughs> oh my uh, God. It's kind of a precursor to the vampire stories that we know so much, too. So, uh, you know, maybe she was onto something, actually. Uh, <laughs> So the the problem, though, with with that is that it's transient. It doesn't last very long. So researchers at Columbia, Cambridge and UC San Fran are investigating how to rejuvenate the entire blood production system. Hmm. So what they found were blood cells are produced by stem cells and bone marrow. And the team looking at the environment or what they call the niche where the stem cells exist and how it changes during aging They see that over time, the niche deteriorates and becomes overwhelmed by inflammation like everything else, right? It's always inflammation. Mm -hmm. The good news on this is they were able to identify one of the inflammatory signals called 1L1B that's responsible for impairing these stem cells. And Mm -hmm. we've already been working on medication that fixes this because 1L and 1B have been implicated for other causes for inflammatory conditions like Mm. rheumatoid arthritis and fibromyalgia, other things like that. And we've already got drugs that target that. They used a drug, it's an arthritis drug called anakinra to Mm -hmm. block 1L2B and found the blood stems returned to a healthier, younger state. That's really interesting. I have actually heard of that drug because I read a totally separate thing that during COVID, there were some people who were getting cytokine storms as sort of an Mm. extra horrible side effect of COVID. And they said Mm -hmm. specifically that drug was what you would use to try to calm it down if that was happening. Oh, 
So it makes sense. It's clearly got some immune connections as well as just general arthritis. Yeah, and inflammatory, right, which yeah. is usually the thing that kickstarts a lot of autoimmune disorders mm-hmm. and things. Uh, and they also said that the treatment would work better if it's given out through the entire lifetime, not just when they're old. Oh, yeah. You got to mm-hmm. keep that fresh young blood flowing. <laughs> right. We are in the early days of research, and it's only on mice right now. But mm-hmm. because it's already a drug that's in use... We're going to see this clinical testing a lot sooner. Yeah. Oh, yeah. On the other hand, it does mean some people have already been taking it. So it's not like some yes. magical youth drug. <laughs> we would know already if it was. But if it helps, Correct. and it helps specifically people who don't have arthritis but do have inflammation and so they haven't tried it yet, then that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or how long have we been on arthritis? Usually you get on that medication older unless yeah, pretty you're late in early yeah. onset arthritis. But that's it. So the good news is, you know, maybe by the time we're 80, we'll have a drug out there that helps us feel a little younger for like a year or two. (laughs) (laughs) As long as you can afford it. Right. As long as you can afford it. Exactly. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. This next article is from The Guardian and it's called Queen of the Skies, How the Boeing 747 Shaped an Era of Air Travel. And Mm. I'll be honest, I almost didn't do this article because of how angry I was at the subhead. It says, and I quote, the iconic jet won't disappear from the skies yet, but everyone from John Travolta to female pilots celebrates it. (laughs) Wow. I mean, I don't care if it's not a name we recognize. Just put a human being in there so we're not claiming that the opposite of John Travolta is all female pilots. Like, it's just ridiculous. (laughs) I don't know. Obviously, I was a little sensitive that day when I'm reading this. But anyway, (laughs) the article itself is fine. It's basically a tribute to the history of Boeing's 747 aircraft, which has, as of this month, officially ceased production, but which was, at the time of its release, the largest aircraft ever made and was considered, quote, the epitome of glamour in the skies. So the first 747 was purchased by TWA, or Trans World Airlines, which itself went out of business in 2001. Lynn Ripplemeyer was a flight attendant for TWA in the 1970s, And she described what kind of luxury you could expect on the airline's biggest and best plane. We had linen napkins and tablecloths, china and crystal vases with real flowers in first class. There was a seven-course meal. You got your prime rib carved right at your seat. Listen, I hate hearing about how good it was <laughs> it flying, like, version. Yeah, because I never got to experience it, and it's only gotten more horrific since. Yeah, so yeah. shut up with your prime. <laughs> well, unfortunately, you. I have I have some more details to share with you. The, uh, <laughs> the 747 was four stories tall in the front, with the pilots sitting on the top floor. And in the early days, TWA maintained a bar and lounge on the second floor. Not to be outdone, American Airlines installed a baby grand piano in the first class section of their own 747 and offered separate table reservations for dinner. And though all of this was in first class, it wasn't too bad in the cheap seats either. The economy class had its own smaller lounge and bar and offered filet mignon as one of the dining options. (laughs) Now, to your point, and to be fair, passengers back then were also paying a whole lot more for their flights. A one-way economy ticket from New York to London in the early 1970s was around $3,000 in today's money. But as airlines began to focus less on luxury and more on how many people can we cram inside this aircraft, the 747 was actually also instrumental in bringing down prices for the entire industry because they could charge less by putting in more so everybody else had to keep up. And Lynn Ripplemeyer herself actually went on to get her pilot's license 
and become the first certified female pilot of the 747 in the entire world. One of the reasons she was able to achieve that was because most of the flight attendants at the time didn't actually want to work in first class, not because of the customers, but because of verbal harassment from the male pilots. Wow, but, really? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> that tracks. But Ripplemeyer <laughs> shrugged it off, saying she grew up being teased, so it didn't bother her. And because of that, she was able to sit in the cockpit whenever she wasn't working and learn how some of the flight systems worked. She was wow. able to get all the way up to a flight engineer with TWA after taking some flying lessons, but they had a hard line against hiring female pilots. So when she moved up to first officer, she had to switch to a cargo airline. <laughs> yeah. Wow. She can work. Just don't let anybody see her working. Right? Exactly. Well, or, you know, if she crashes, it's only so, stuff. It's not people. Right, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And at that point, she wasn't a pilot yet, but she was sitting right next to the pilot. And one day, the guy she was flying with asked her, how would you like to be the first woman to fly a 747? And she said she actually was a little bit hesitant because she had been told repeatedly by other male pilots that the job was simply too hard for a woman to do. And while that is obviously ridiculous, their idea didn't come entirely out of left field because you have to remember that cars back then didn't have power steering. And it actually took a surprising amount of strength to drive a car. And some women genuinely weren't strong enough to steer the very biggest cars on the road. But planes weren't like that, even back in the 70s. And when she expressed her concerns that she might not be able to steer the plane, the male pilot told her, and this is a horrible quote, girl, it's hydraulics. I'll show you. (laughs) That is a new meme, though. That's right. Girl, it's hydraulics. So once she was qualified to fly jumbo jets, Ripplemeyer joined a low-cost airline called People Express that apparently did allow female pilots, and she became the first woman to captain a jumbo jet across the Atlantic. She landed at London's Gatwick Airport in July 1984 to an enthusiastic reception from the British press and later in the year was honored at a Women of the Year ceremony in the UK. Over the years, a few other manufacturers did try to build competing jumbo jets, including Lockheed's TriStar and the Airbus A380 as recently as 2007. But Ripplemeyer says none of them were as good as the 747, which was apparently a very smooth and mechanically luxurious experience for the pilots as well, and they all eventually ceased production. But while the 747 outlasted them all, its days have finally come to an end as well largely because we've gotten better at transatlantic flight and it's now more economical to fly smaller planes even though they have fewer passengers in them. Hmm. Airlines that already have them will, of course, keep using them, including the White House, which uses a modified 747 for Air Force One, and the final brand-new 747 after more than 50 years and 1,574 aircraft built will go to Atlas Air, which is a cargo line that operates the largest 747 fleet in the world. And at this point, you may be wondering, where does John Travolta come in? Well, he shows up here at the very end. He was among the crowd who gathered outside to bid farewell as the final jumbo jet left the assembly plant in Seattle. He said, quote, even when you understand the science behind flight, there's nothing like seeing a 747 take flight to remind you that there's also magic here. Or, or, or science. Right, uh, right, right. Or science. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's okay. emotional magic in watching uh, a giant uh, plane I see, I see. roll across the tarmac. Just as there is SEO <laughs> magic in dropping a John Travolta reference into your article about That's right. typing 747. <laughs> well, you know, they couldn't name any female pilots, so they had to come up with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. 
Okay, vibe check. Is sushi still kind of a niche food, or would you say it's like mainstream? Oh, I mean, we live in Austin, so we're very... Say so it's yeah. becoming so, yeah. I mean, uh, we're not exactly next to an ocean, but I can get sushi whenever I want. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of where I am, too. And that's also where Lit Hub is. This article is how America came to enthusiastically embrace sushi. Considering how long food trends take to kind of worm their way into cultures, this has been a relatively rapid rise. Hmm. And like... Many Japanese things. The concept actually came from China, <clears throat> where a fourth century cookbook mentions salted fish being placed in cooked rice to undergo a fermentation process that helped preserve the fish. And it likely made its way to Japan in the ninth century. But by the 15th century, Japanese cooks had discovered that, hey, the fish didn't need to be fully fermented to taste good. <laughs> a new form of sushi, mamanare sushi, or raw sushi, was created. To be fair, it wasn't fully raw, though, <laughs> until the early 19th century, when Hanaya Yohei set up a sushi stall along the Sumida River in the city of Ido, now Tokyo. From it, he served what is essentially modern sushi, freshly cooked rice seasoned with vinegar and salt and hand-pressed with a thin slice of fresh fish from the bay. By the early 20th century, there were hundreds of sushi carts around Tokyo, and by the 1950s, Sushi was almost always served indoors. And even though it was trendy among the moneyed class in the early 20th century, it really didn't start to proliferate until the mid-1960s. And around that time, Japan began a period of economic growth that lasted through the 1980s, necessitating travel by Japanese businessmen. So the Michelin Guide has a publication called The History of Sushi in America, and they pin the creation of the modern American sushi bar to a single dude. Sometime mm. in the years between 1964 and 1966, we're talking swinging Mad Men era. But <laughs> on the other coast, in the little Tokyo section of Los Angeles, a Japanese importer named Noritoshi Kanai opened Kawafuku. And he hired master sushi chef Shigeo Saito to work the knife and Saito's wife to serve. The menu was primarily local seafood like sea urchin, abalone, mackerel, and tuna, and everything was made fresh as it was ordered by customers sitting at a counter. Quote, it was a real sushi bar, a phrase Kanai claimed to have coined. That's according mm. to the Michelin writer. Kawafuku catered to both Japanese and American businessmen who were primarily high rollers on expense accounts, right? But right. that, I guess, alone attracted enough curiosity to see, like, why are all these Japanese and American suits eating here? And so it quickly became a sensation. And even more sushi restaurants opened in the neighborhood, including Tokyo Kaikan, which had an entirely different feel from the mom-and-pop style Kawafuku. Kaikan could seat about 300 people in the main dining room, and in addition to sushi, had sections of the restaurant dedicated to tempura and teppanyaki. And my favorite part, it even had an upstairs disco, Tokyo Agogo. <laughs> you know the karaoke no, was nice. off the chain! <laughs> so other sushi spots began popping up outside the neighborhood, one right next to the 20th Century Fox Studio. <laughs> and Los Angeles was a perfect place for sushi's mainstream debut in America. Celebrities would flock for sushi, and they made all the restaurants buzzworthy headlines in the news. And so once sushi became established in America, 
we started getting some innovation. And one of the first and still one of the most popular twists on traditional Japanese sushi, any guesses? Deep fried. <laughs> that's, that's a good guess. But an American innovation on sushi, it's got to be the California roll, right? And uh, Tokyo okay. Kaikon claims as having created the California roll. And the story goes, that chef Ichiro Mashita could not get fatty tuna belly, which was then a seasonal fish. So substituted rich fatty avocado and crab for the tuna to give it flavor of the sea. But in recent years, American sushi has embraced a more neo-traditional approach, emphasizing quality ingredients over fancy presentation. Yeah, refrigeration probably had something to sure. Do you can't with get far from the ocean. From <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's another. It's not in this article, but salmon sushi, which I think is that's my favorite sushi. Mm -hmm. Salmon wasn't actually a fish that the Japanese initially used for sushi. Mm -hmm. It was because Norway had an excess they needed to offload, and they were like, "Hey, Japan, you ever try putting this on some sushi?" <laughs> <laughs> well, and and there was more to it. Like salmon was considered a garbage fish in Japan. Yeah. Because for whatever reason, there was like a local parasite that infected all the salmon near Japan. And so they were like, nobody eats salmon. Salmon's disgusting. And it wasn't until like one guy who was instrumental in saying, no, no, salmon from Norway doesn't have this problem. Right. And so you should you should be willing to import it and eat it. And right. it took a long time because they were still yeah. just like, oh, that's like, yeah, disgusting. he said, I bought way too much of this. It's good. I swear. It's good. <laughs> promise. <laughs> promise. <laughs> all right. Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from zmescience.com and it's titled Remembering Felicit, the first cat in space. Aww. Oh, because I bet that cat didn't make it. There's no way. Uh, well, uh well, I won't spoil it quite yet. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so it was the year 1963 and the space race was full in swing. After significantly lagging behind its Soviet and American rivals, France was eager to prove itself as a space peer to the world's then two superpowers. By this time, it was already two years since Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin became the first human in space. Although late to the party, the French Space Agency made its first serious incursion into manned space flight on October 18, 1963, the day a French cat named Philisette became the first and only feline to ever travel to space. <laughs> This feline hero was plucked from the streets of Paris by the Center of Ensignment at the Research of Aeronautic Medicine, that's a transliteration, <laughs> along with 13 other stray cats, all female, since they were thought to have a calmer demeanor that would be better suited to the claustrophobic confines of a spaceship. <laughs> Maybe cat sexism? You decide. Anyways. They didn't want to get attacked in a tiny little capsule. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, tomboy cats are, they're a handful. It's true. <laughs> all right, we all know how easy it is to stick a cat in a crate. Right, yeah. Right. <laughs> For months, the catstronaut candidates oh. endured months of grueling training, including confinement oh. in small containers and withstanding hours in a restraint cloth. Oh my like God. human astronauts, yeah, it's a little sad. Like human astronauts, the cats also underwent dizzying multi-G force spinning by a centrifuge <laughs> to test the cat's resilience at liftoff and re-entry. Dear God. I don't know. I like to think of them having fun. You know, they're training. <laughs> they're feeling proud of their accomplishment is how I'm choosing yes. to look at it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All the felines had permanent electrodes surgically implanted <sighs> into their brains so scientists could monitor their neurological activity both during training and the journey in space. 
There's a little, very old photo here of Felicet strapped in her launch seat where you can see her, you know, in this little space. She's quite cute, though she does have the brain implant. She looks a little confused. <laughs> no um, kidding. <laughs> yeah. However, only one cat out of the cosmic litter would be sent to space. From the six finalist candidates, a tuxedo cat with the designation C-341 was chosen on launch day to board the French Veronique AG-1 rocket, which was expected to soar from the Algerian Sahara Desert. Besides the electrodes fitted inside her skull, scientists also glued electrodes to C-341's forward left and right rear legs to monitor cardiac activity and stimulate the cat during the flight. In the early morning of October 18, 1963, launching from the Sahara Desert, the Daring Kitty finally reached suborbital space at an altitude of 152 kilometers or 94 miles during a flight that lasted 13 minutes, five minutes of which were pure weightlessness. The capsule that housed the cat plunged back to Earth, deployed its parachute, and safely touched down at the <gasps> designated landing site where a helicopter was waiting to pick up the frightened, albeit healthy cat. Yeah. It lived! Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm happy now. <laughs> Somewhat ironically, before this flight, France had so far only sent rats to space. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is a terrible the little... Aesop's fable of yeah, like... Yeah, they have to send the cat to catch the rats. <laughs> <laughs> the mission was a resounding success, and all of France cheered for the cat, now a national treasure. But the name C-341, a code system that was chosen on purpose, so the French scientists wouldn't become attached to them, wasn't fitting for a hero, so the French media quickly named her Felix after the cartoon character, which was quickly changed to the feminine Felicette. Mm. Yet, I'm sorry, Jen, despite (gasps) people being proud and fond of her, Felicette's story didn't have a happy ending. Only two months after she came back from space, Felicette was euthanized so (gasps) that researchers could examine her brain and study how space travel affected her body. Man, the 1960s were brutal. Come on. Yeah. No mercy, no chill. I mean, whatsoever. honestly, though, we would do it today. Like we're yeah. doing that to animals. Come on. Yeah. 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 We just had a uh, study of blood transfusion with mice. Yeah, exactly. So definitely, yeah. they're not. They're yeah. not free. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the only difference is that cats are bigger, and we like them more. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but. It's not at all clear if Philly Set's autopsy rendered any useful intel and France never launched astronauts on its own rockets, though it produced 10 astronauts that went to space as part of the European Space Agency, founded in 1973 with France as its first contributor. Philly Set quickly faded out of the public's consciousness, overshadowed by the much more famous Laika, the Soviet space dog who became the first animal to orbit Earth in 1957, or even Ham, the first great ape launched in space in 1961 by NASA. However, Felicet's memory was rescued from obscurity thanks to the efforts of space enthusiast and all-around cat person Matthew Serge Guy, who launched a successful Kickstarter campaign in 2017 to build a memorial in honor of the space cat. The campaign gathered over 1,100 patrons who contributed $57,000 to honor Felicet with a five-foot-tall bronze statue designed by acclaimed sculptor Gil Parker. The statue depicts Felicet perched atop planet Earth, gazing upward toward the sky she once pierced on her way to space. It was unveiled on December 18, 2019, and is currently on display at the International Space University campus in Strasbourg. Did they light up the uh, electrodes in the statue? Oh. <laughs> no, it does not have any electrodes, as far as I can tell. <laughs> After the success of the Apollo moon landings, animals began to take a back seat in space exploration. Even so, animals like rabbits, frogs, snails, silkworms, bees, spiders, turtles, jellyfish, cockroaches, and of course the resilient tardigrades 
have been sent into space from the 1990s until quite recently. Mm -hmm. The service of these animals for space exploration cannot be overstated, with every astronaut landing safely back on Earth owing a great debt to them. So here's to Laika, Belka, and Strelka, the canines, Abel and Baker, the squirrel monkeys, Ham the chimp, Felicet the cat, Arabella and Anita, the garden spiders, and all the dozens of other brave animals we now have to thank for safe spaceflight. Adieu. <laughs> At least we, we name them all now. We're not calling them C-140 whatever. We're like, no, that's yeah. Arabella Ugh. the spider. It's like... <laughs> God, what do aliens have to think of like, hey, they launched another one. Let's get ready to meet their, whoa, this one's real different. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just like a constantly rotating cast of mm -hmm. weird species and animals mm -hmm. and none of them can really communicate. And they're like, how did they do this? How'd they I make think, this? How'd they possibly build a rocket yeah. when they can't even speak? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, next link. Next link. Okay, this comes from CNN Style. The husband and wife forgers who fooled the art market and made millions. Ooh. For more than 30 years, Wolfgang and Helen Belchacki had been making forgeries and fake paintings that fooled the art world and made millions of dollars in the process. <laughs> it wasn't until Wolfgang ran out of zinc that he made white paint with that the jig was up. Oh, you cut corners and this is what happens. <laughs> well, he purchased it a new batch from a Dutch manufacturer who didn't disclose that there was titanium in it. Ah. And so the next year, Red Picture with Horses is the title of the painting had been passed off as a work of Heinrich Kamendonk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's C-A-M-E-R-N-D-O-N-K. Kamendonk. And sold for $2.8 million. Uh, wow. But analysis of the painting found traces of titanium, which, again, was in the white paint in the 20s. Problem was, this painting was supposed to be from 1914. Mm. Yeah, so this sparked a big discovery that Wolfgang's paintings had found their way into many auction blocks and private auctions. They even deceived art experts, and they were sentenced to six and four years of prison in order to pay 35 million euros. Here's why it worked so well. Rather than forging existing paintings, Wolfgang produced hundreds of original works that skillfully imitated the styles of deceased mm. European artists. The pair claimed to have inherited their art collection from Helen's grandfather, who said that they had acquired it from a Jewish gallerist fleeing Hitler's Germany. Sure, because that's not traceable. Of course you want to say that's where you got it from. Right, right. They were convicted of forging just 14 artworks, but many were excluded because of statutes of limitations. Mm. They claim to have made around 300 fakes, which means wow. there's still a bunch out there. Wow. Wolfgang said, the forgery was almost incidental. We got a kick out of it. We got rich. I got to paint and we enjoyed doing the research too. Forgery was a way of combining all these things. Because <laughs> what they did, their success was rooted in meticulous research and obsession with detail. Taking what they would call cultural trips, the couple traveled to locations where the artist they were emulating had painted or to see original artworks in museums. They also would immerse themselves in artists' letters and diaries, as well as the scholarship around the work. All of these artworks were known to be lost, and they had no pictures. Oh, okay. so, so they were based on sort reference. of existing information about what Correct, shows it. Right, yeah, yeah. right. And they would purchase old frames and canvases, even use 1920s cameras to take old-looking pictures for the provenance. They saw their crimes as victimless. Wolfgang said that he only produced pictures he considered beautiful, and he believed the owners enjoyed them as much as the art market profited from them. 
Mm. Yeah, today his personal website describes his story as a, quote, Robin Hood tale. But <laughs> he doesn't seem to be giving the money back to anybody No, else. yeah, if he's not donating yeah. those millions to charity, then it's just yeah. a him getting rich story. Like, it's right. not. He, said, he but... said, and I quote, I got to sit around the pool for days reading and daydreaming and sleeping. Yeah. Honestly, I have to give props to the fact that he was able to be so successful through an art career because that is sure. Exceedingly That's difficult tough. Yeah, yeah, baseline yeah. at all. Yeah. No, he's talented. Yeah. So in the years since his release, he is out of jail now. Wolfgang is still creating works of art, but now under his own name, while still continuing to profit from his sensational story. Well, yeah, now he's famous by his own name. He can do the thing he probably always wanted to do, which was just paint art and be famous. Yeah. And in 2021, he released a series of my favorite NFTs. Titled oh. The Great. Okay. No, I don't which, like him anymore. He's done. Uh, and which, yeah, which he reimagined Leonardo da Vinci's Salvador Mundi in a style of a famous artist, including Andy Warhol and Vincent Van Gogh. Uh, but you know what? I got AI art now, so I don't really need that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, forget that guy. I can, just, I can just type that in and voila, I got a, I got a result there. Uh-huh. All right, well, next link. Next, next link. link. This next one is from Science Alert, and it's called, But Wait, What If the Hypothetical Planet Nine Has Moons? <laughs> now, in case you think I've gone totally sci-fi with you already, I haven't. Planet Nine is a real thing, or at least a real concept for a thing that we know is out there but can't identify yet. And the reason we know it's there is because the orbits of several other confirmed objects in the Kuiper Belt are demonstrably affected by its gravity. So while we've never been able to see it, and we can't necessarily say it's a planet, we can say with relative certainty that something is out there, and it has a mass of about 5 to 10 times more than Earth. And in fact, Hmm. some scientists believe that the reason we've never been able to see it is because it's actually a black hole. Mm. Five to ten times the mass of Earth is not actually that big for a black hole, so if it is, it would be extremely small. But regardless of what it actually is, the one thing we do know about it is its gravity. And astronomer Man Ho Chan of the Education University of Hong Kong has put forth a new theory that shows how we could potentially locate it by the presence of its moons. Because as he shows mathematically in his paper, it's almost impossible for something of that size in that location not to have picked up several moons. And the location is key to this theory, because the closer you get to the sun, the less likely you are to have moons. Mercury and Venus have none, and of course Earth has only one, which we likely only have because it was generated from a chunk of our own planet. Most moons have to be snagged out of space as passing rocks, and the closer you are to the sun, the more likely it is that the sun's just going to take it for itself. But Hmm. once you get further out, moons become all the rage, as it says in the article, (laughs) and Planet Nine in particular is estimated to be somewhere between the Kuiper Belt, full of rocks, and the Oort Cloud, also full of rocks. So according to chance calculations, Planet Nine should have around 20 orbiting objects larger than 87 miles across. And another thing we know about these kinds of snatched moons is that they tend to have highly irregular elliptical orbits. This means that as they go around their central body, they are experiencing dramatically different gravitational forces when they're closest to it versus when they're farthest away, to the point that there's some actual stretching of the asteroid's physical material. And this constant cycle of stretch and release generates heat inside the moon, which is dissipated as thermal radiation and which Chan says we should be able to detect. 
So basically what we're looking for is one or more asteroids somewhere between 400 and 800 times our distance from the sun, which have a steadily fluctuating heat signature that would indicate they're not just traveling across the sky, but are in fact orbiting in a tight circle around something as they travel across the sky. And if we find two or three of these objects in a cluster together, then the chances are very good that whatever is at the center is planet nine. I will say this article came out several days ago before the Department of Defense began shooting things down out of the sky over the U.S. <laughs> and so the article does not mention aliens or, you know, oh, Planet Nine is actually an alien arc full of people. <laughs> like, they, they don't they don't speculate because they're science alert and they're better than we are. Um, but I would certainly like to think that the reason we can't see it is it's got a cloaking device on it. Mm-hmm. And. This is all connected. The Romulans still don't trust us yet. Yeah. Well, they saw this article and they're basically like, "Uh uh-oh, they're about to get us because of our moons. We got to (laughs) introduce ourselves. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include what it takes to build a balloon for 100,000 feet, controlled experiments show MDs dismissing evidence due to ideology, and can clouds of moon dust combat climate change? So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.